After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man sit under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us through the ages that we can have it this morning. Oh God, open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. By your spirit, Lord, work in our hearts. Grant us renewed faith. Lord, even grant us faith if we have none. Father, have your way with our hearts and our minds and our wills. Father, I pray that you would help me, your servant, protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. You, O oh God, are our rock and our redeemer. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Legend has it that when Betty Crocker introduced their instant cake mixes in the late 1940s, they ran into some trouble. At first, the mixes sold very well, but within just a few years, sales plummeted. A task force was formed to get to the bottom of the issue. And here's what the task force concluded. It was too easy. It was too easy. You see, when the mixes were first developed, they contained dried eggs. All you had to do was add water to the mix, stir it all up, bake it, and voila, a cake. So easy, even I could do it, right? But apparently, this was too easy. Consumer surveys that were conducted by the task force concluded that to enhance the baker's satisfaction, more needed to be done on their part. The baker needed some more investment in it. They needed to do something else. The average baker didn't feel satisfied with the product and the process. So Betty Crocker changed the formula of the mix. They removed the dry eggs and they required a real egg to be added. Now you had to add water and an egg to the mix, stir it up, bake it, and voila, a cake. Believe it or not, once that step was added, 
The instant cake mixes became an instant hit and they remain so even today. Water and an egg and just bake it, maybe some oil and bake it. Now I know you're hungry for a piece of cake, right? Now you're hungry. But let me tell you why I shared this story with you. I did so because it illustrates a reality that confronts many people when they consider the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ for sinners. It's too easy. Consider the words of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that we've already heard this morning and we've sung together this morning. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not your works that save you. It's not your merit that makes you able to believe the gospel. You are not worthy in and of yourself to receive the grace of God. The gospel renders you absolutely unable to boast in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. To some, that's just too easy, even too good to be true. To some, there must be something, something they have done or something they can do that makes them worthy to partake of the gospel. That is a prevailing belief. Our text this morning, Luke 7, 1 through 10, shines a divine light on the reality of this perception. For in this text, we meet a centurion, a seemingly worthy man who is faced with a desperate situation, a situation that brings him ultimately to a unique expression of faith an expression of faith that even causes Jesus himself to marvel. So let's begin our study of this passage by taking a look at the desperate situation that is presented. I know many of you like to take notes with outlines, so here's your first of three points today, a desperate situation, a desperate situation. Verse one tells us that after Jesus had finished all his sayings, and it's referring to those teachings presented in chapter six, verses 20 through 49. After he finished this, he went to Capernaum. Then in verse two, we're told that in Capernaum, there was a centurion who had a servant who was sick and at the point of death. Now notice that Luke, right? Luke the physician offers no formal diagnosis as he often does. There's no hint of what made this servant sick. There's no hint of what kind of sickness it even was. Luke just gets right down to the point and says that he is sick unto death, literally. He's sick unto death. The situation is indeed critical. Likely the people caring for this man were seeing the telltale signs of his imminent demise. And if you've ever been with someone who is dying, you know these signs. Languish, lethargy, detachment, and even desperate struggle for every breath. As we say, the death watch was on for this servant. This is indeed a desperate situation. Now, Luke doesn't tell us 
what kind of servant this man was. As you may know, slavery was ubiquitous in the Roman Empire. There were indeed people who were forced into service or slavery against their will, something we call today chattel slavery. But many servants in the empire were called bond servants. They were people who had offered themselves, sold themselves in service to others in order to pay off a debt or to earn a living. We're not sure exactly what kind of servant this man was, but we do know something about his master. Luke tells us that his master is a centurion. If you don't know what that means, it means that this man is a high-ranking Roman military official in charge of at least a hundred men. That's where the word centurion comes from, century, right? He has at least a hundred men under his command. Centurions were known to be fierce warriors. You didn't just get that title because you happen to know someone, but you've proven yourself in battle. They commanded extreme respect and extreme obedience, and they were well paid. They were well paid by the Romans. But there's something different about this one. There's something different about this centurion, and you start to get a glimpse of it at the very end of verse two. Look there with me again. Notice that Luke says that his servant was highly valued by him. The servant was highly valued. Now, this could mean that the servant's work was of a high value to the centurion. He needed him to do this task that maybe only he could do. It could mean that. But what follows in the rest of the text through chapter 10 doesn't follow that line of thinking. I mean, in general, servants, no matter what type they were, were generally expendable to people like centurions. If a servant failed or if a servant died, they'll just get another one, replace them with someone else. But obviously, this servant means so much more to this centurion. This master values him enough, as we see in the text very clearly, to go above and beyond to try and save his life. But before we get to all that he does, let's stop for a moment and ponder this desperate situation. This servant is facing the enemy that is common to everyone. Every human who has ever lived, what is that enemy? Death. Hebrews 9.27 reminds us of the commonality of this enemy. You don't need to turn there, but it reads thus, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Everyone will die and then face judgment. The desperate situation of this servant reminds us of mortality. It should remind even us of our own mortality. One day, each and every one of us will face death. One day, unless the Lord comes back, each and every one of us will have to stare death straight in the eye. How's that for some good news? I always joke that there's, there's two things that a pastor is responsible for that never makes it into a job description. Preparing people to suffer and preparing people to die. I didn't see that in the job description here, but it is part of what God calls us to do. 
we will face death. Beyond that, this desperate situation also reminds us of the overwhelming feelings that we feel, right? That we face when those whom we love are suffering, even suffering unto death. It's obvious from our text that the centurion desperately wanted to help the servant for whom he cared so much. I think it's safe to presume that a man of his status had tried everything he could think of, but there seemed to be nothing he could do to help. He's absolutely helpless. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt helpless in the midst of a situation? Have you felt this way when the doctors say there's nothing else that they can do for a family member or a friend? Have you felt this way when you try and try and try to mend a broken relationship between two people that you love dearly? Have you felt this way when you simply cannot give enough because you don't have it to give to someone close to you who is struggling financially? Have you felt this way when you share the gospel with someone and they just ignore you? and they still show no interest in loving and serving Jesus? Do you know the desperation that accompanies a desperate situation? I'm sure you do. I know I do. So what do you do? (laughs) What do you do when there's nothing else that you can do to help someone who is in need? You do exactly what the centurion did. You ask Jesus. You ask Jesus. And this brings us to our second point this morning. A worthy man. Now, if you're writing this down, do it this way. A worthy man, air quotes, okay? We're gonna put worthy in quotes. A worthy man. Verse three tells us that when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. This is a very military way of addressing the problem, isn't it? He wants something done, so what does he do? He commands somebody else to do it for him, right? (laughs) Go and ask him to do this. Could he have gone by himself? I mean, he could have, right? But that would be too easy, right? So he sends elders of the Jews, and this is where it really starts to get interesting. This is where it gets interesting. We learn some more important information about this centurion by the words these elders say to Jesus. Look down again at verses four and five, where they begin to talk to Jesus halfway through four. He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. This man is definitely not your typical centurion. Not only did he care for his servant, but he also cared for the Jews. He loves Israel. He even built the synagogue in Capernaum for them, the very one that Jesus had just preached in in chapter four. This man was pro-Semitic, even as an occupying force. What kind of man is this? Who is this guy? Well, according to these elders, he's worthy. He's a worthy man, a man worthy to have Jesus come and heal his servant. I mean, in other words, this is what they're saying. Hey, Jesus, this man has scratched our back. We owe it to him to scratch his too. Hasn't he 
earned this. That's essentially what they're saying. This guy's a worthy guy. Look at everything he's done. You should help him. You, sh you should do this. And yet again, we come face to face with a common enemy. This time it's not death. This time it's the false belief that our works somehow merit us the favor of God. I'll call it the damning misconception that the key to our eternal salvation is somehow tied to our own personal worthiness. If you don't believe it, you need to. That is indeed a deadly enemy. Over the last five to 10 years, we've been hearing more and more from missiologists, people who study missions, from sociologists and other Christian scholars about the rise of the nuns. The rise of the nuns. Now, that may sound like the title of an amazing action movie, but it is not. First time I saw that, I had to double take. And when I say nuns, okay, when I say nuns, I'm not referring to women dressed in habits carrying rotary beads and rulers, okay? I'm talking about N-O-N-E-S, nuns, the people who when asked to check their religious preference on surveys, pick the word nun, the rise of the nuns. As of three years ago, that represents roughly 23% of Americans, roughly 23%. Now, to be clear, these nuns don't call themselves atheists. That's another box. In fact, most nuns consider themselves to be quite spiritual. Many of them grew up in Christian homes. They have a respect for the person of Jesus. They admire his ministry to the poor, his ministry to the outcast. They like some of the things he said, things like love your enemy, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Judge not, lest you be judged. They like those things. And they love that he gave his life for his friends. They consider him a great example and a great teacher. But N-O-N-E-S, nuns, oppose the biblical gospel. When asked, many of them say the gospel is too easy. They say the gospel is too easy. In fact, many of them call it moral escapism. They caricature Christianity as, quote, just believe in Jesus and live however you want and make sure you ask forgiveness along the way. Many are also very assertive in their claims that the gospel ignores and the gospel undermines the good deeds of people. So in their pseudo, I'll call it pseudo-spirituality because it's not true spirituality, they go above and beyond in doing what? Doing good deeds. I'll give you a classic example. Starting a company that gives a percentage of their profits to charity. Now, there's nothing wrong with that as a business model, right? But talk to a lot of the nuns, the spiritual people who do that, and they're doing it because they wanna be worthy because that's the good thing to do. Here's what they say in the end. If there is a God... When I face him, he will look at the worth of people based on what they've done. That'll be more important than what they have believed or whom they have believed 
in. You ever met a nun? Yeah. They're everywhere. One in four. One in four. But let's be honest. Let's get real. No matter how much good these nuns do, unless they repent of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will spend eternity in hell. They will go to hell. Their efforts to make themselves worthy before the holy and righteous creator God of the universe, it's as futile, you've heard me say it before, I'll say it again, it's as futile as trying to lasso the moon with a rope made of sand. They can't do it. They can't even try to do it. They can't please God with the works of their own hands. I shared all that because I hope that you notice the correlation between the nuns of our day, the N-O-N-E-S, for people who are listening later and maybe came in right there, the nuns of our day and the elders, scribes, and the Pharisees of Jesus' day. There's a direct correlation. These elders are measuring the centurion's worth in the same way that they've already shown in this gospel how they measure their own, by their adherence to their own works, by thinking that they can make themselves more acceptable to God by what they do. Such thinking is foolish and such thinking is damning for it is not the faith that God requires. The faith that God requires is found in the rest of the account before us. And that's faith is our third and final point this morning, what I'm gonna call a marvelous faith. A marvelous faith. Verse six reminds us of the amazing compassion of Jesus. He doesn't question the centurion's motive. Do you notice that? He doesn't question it. He doesn't even question the elder's motive. Compelled by love, what does it say? He just goes with them. He just goes with them. And then we find that before he even gets there, he's met by some friends of this centurion, friends bearing a message. Look with me again at verses six through eight to see what they have to say on his behalf. Begins midway through verse six. Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Perhaps the centurion had second thoughts. Perhaps it had even been reported to him what the elders had said about him, that he was worthy Whatever it was, his tone is different than theirs, is it not? His tone is different than the elders. Everyone else thought he deserved whatever help he needed. But by what can only be attributed to God's amazing grace, the centurion saw himself as he really was. Not worthy at all. Not worthy compared to Jesus. He says he's not even worthy to be under the same roof. Now, many commentators assert 
that the centurion says this because he was concerned about ritual purity, right? He's a Gentile. And so having Jesus come to his home, a Gentile's home, would make Jesus unclean in the eyes of the religious leaders. Jesus can't be, he can't be tainted by uncleanliness. People think that's why. Well, all that's true. It wouldn't have been normal for Jesus to go into his home, but that's not what he says. We actually have what he says. He makes it personal. It has nothing to do with ritual purity. I'm not worthy. He says, I'm not worthy. He recognizes that Jesus is of supreme worth. He even says so in his own analogy. He knows that he's a military man. He knows that he's under authority. And he knows that the authority he bears comes from those who give it to him all the way up the chain to Caesar himself. And somehow, we don't get a glimpse to how, other than we can attribute it to the Holy Spirit, somehow he recognizes that Jesus bears authority, different authority, divine authority. I'm pretty sure that this guy couldn't articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. Pretty sure he couldn't. Neither could the thief on the cross. Somehow, somehow, he has the faith to know that Jesus is acting under the authority of another, the authority of his father. So he wants Jesus to do what he believes in his heart that Jesus can do. And it's right there in verse seven. And this is key. Say the word and let my servant be healed. Just say the word. That's a recognition of who Jesus is. Just say it and it'll be done. I'm not worthy, Jesus. I'm not even worthy to come to you myself. I believe that if you just say the word, he will be healed. Notice how Jesus responds to this in verse nine. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. He marveled at him. You may not know this, but there's only two times in the gospels where Jesus marvels at people. Only two times. The first is recorded in Mark 6, 6. We saw the parallel account in Luke 4 when Jesus is rejected at Nazareth. Mark says that he, quote, marveled at their unbelief. He marveled at their unbelief. The second instance is right here. Jesus marvels at the centurion and says, I haven't found faith like this, even in Israel. So without ever stepping foot into the house, without ever even seeing the man who is dying, verse 10 tells us that when the messengers got back to the house, they found him what? Well, healed alive. That's remarkable. That is absolutely remarkable. In fact, some commentators even call it the most miraculous miracle in the whole Bible. Save the resurrection. The most miraculous miracle. With just a word, maybe. We even have a word recorded here. With just a thought. 
an impulse of his divine will, Jesus heals the servant. How marvelous, how wonderful, right? Friends, behold the amazing grace and power and compassion of Jesus Christ. That's what Luke wants us to see, that he is indeed Lord, Lord of all. That's what makes this account so truly amazing. Sure, the centurion's faith is amazing. I mean, I wrote some things down here. It's amazing to see such a mighty man conscious of his need for help. That doesn't always happen, does it? It's amazing for such a good man to see his own unworthiness and not rest in his own goodness. It's amazing to find someone who is willing to take Jesus at his word with complete confidence in the power of his command. It's even totally amazing to find all of that in a Gentile for this day, someone outside of the covenant community. But the truly amazing thing about this account is how it simply presents the simplicity of the gospel. It presents the simplicity of the gospel. The gospel reminds us that each and every one of us are unworthy of God's grace in and of ourselves. Because of our sin, we deserve condemnation and death. But through his mercy, God doesn't give us what we deserve. That's what mercy is, right? God doesn't give us what we deserve. Instead, through his grace, and this is what grace is, he gives us what we don't deserve. Redemption through the blood of Jesus. He gives us restoration of our relationship with him. He gives us forgiveness of our sins and he gives us assurance of eternal life with him. And all of it is a gift. All of it is a gift. It's not your works that save you. It's not your merit that makes you able to believe the gospel. You're not worthy in and of yourself to receive the grace of God. The gospel renders you absolutely unable to boast in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ. To some, that's just too easy, even too good to be true. But listen, it is. It is true. It is true. So God's call to you, even his gift to you by the power of his Holy Spirit, his call is for you to totally abandon all of your worthiness to abandon all of your own works. I'm not saying don't live for God and do good works. That's an expression of our salvation. It doesn't earn it or keep it. It's an expression. But listen, let go, let go of all the things that you think make you right before God. If it's anything but Jesus, then those other things, they're nothing. Only Jesus only Jesus. Listen, if you've never done that before, the call of scripture is clear. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That's it. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You don't have to clean yourself up and get yourself ready for it. God comes in and he changes your heart and he gives you faith and your call is to express that faith. In him. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, I pray that today will be the day that you cry out to the Lord in faith. Believe in him and you will be saved.
And Christians, join me in dying to yourself and living for God. It's you, Lord. By grace, I've been saved through faith. That's a message worth believing. It's a message worth sharing. It's also a life worth living and a life worth sharing. So welcome to the Granville Chapel, where we believe we are called to share our lives and the gospel with one another while standing firmly on his word. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletins?